Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindsrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 261, which is the continuation of my recent interview with Dr. M. R. X. Dentith, who is Associate Professor in the International Centre for Philosophy at Beijing Normal University, in which we are discussing the wonderfully named subject, Conspiracy Theory Theory. Yes, indeed, you did hear me right. We're not talking about conspiracy theory per se, but conspiracy theory theory. And we're centering the discussion in the essential 2018 book edited by Dr. Dentith called Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, published by Roman and Littlefield. So in the first part posted last week, we laid the groundwork for the conversation and then discussed the first section of the book entitled The Particularist Turn in the Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. And now today in this second part, we go on to consider the second and final section of the book called Diagnosing Conspiracy Theory Theorists, which is essentially about the so-called pathologizing project of those who would wish to characterize conspiracy theorists as not quite right in the head in some way, and the responses by Dr. Dentith and colleagues who, I'm very glad to say, argue against that whole project. So that is the area of discussion for this part today. But just before I play that, uh, let me just say, in case there is anybody who might not understand what's going on at times in this interview. There are times in the conversation where an example pops up, an imaginative example of a conspiracy, and it is completely imaginative. It's a thought experiment, so please don't think that any of the suggestions are really advocating a conspiracy theory about Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Roger Stone or Elon Musk. It's completely imaginative. So I thought I'd just make that clear in case anybody might misunderstand and be upset unnecessarily by something that's said in the interview. So having said that, um, I'm now going to play the second part of the conversation, Diagnosing Conspiracy Theory Theorists. And I hope you very much enjoy this second part. So without more ado, here is the last part of my conversation with Dr. M. R. X. Dentith. Can we go to the second part of the book? We can. Which is called Pathologizing. Well, it's not called that. So it's about this pathologizing of conspiracy theorists and indeed conspiracy theory theorists. So called Diagnosing Conspiracy Theory Theorists. So this part two of the collection seems to be centered in rebutting arguments of generalists, in particular these various social scientists we're talking about, who seek to pathologize people who dare to think about conspiracy theories. And I believe you're responding to a group of people who were actually advising the French government as to how to deal with conspiracy theory ideas with their youth. Is that right? Well, yes. So we were responding to an open letter in Le Monde, which I think was actually more a bunch of social scientists who wanted to advise the French government. So ah. it was very much the French government should be listening to what we, the experts in social psychology in France, believe about this particular thing. Ah. And it's quite a short open letter. It's only about a page in length. And they talk about the dangers of talking about conspiracy theories in school, the dangers of talking about conspiracy theories generally, and the fact that the French government's best response is to appeal to what the social scientists are doing 
and thus they can come up with a way to basically inoculate the French population from the danger of conspiracy theory. Mm. Now, this open letter, which appeared in French, an informal English translation started to be circulated around a whole bunch of my friends and colleagues. Most of us were incensed by it. Uh, actually, I don't know whether incensed is the right word. We were, we, we were peeved. We'll go, go for a much more British reserve thing. We were very <laughs> peeved because mm. we kind of felt that it was engaging in rampant generalism about these things called conspiracy theories and the consequence of following their prescription, to use a kind of pathologizing term, mm. would mm. be that actually just it, you'd end up ignoring potential cases of conspiracies happening around you. And we take it that that is a bad thing. In the same respect, some people go rampant conspiracy theories are bad for society. We go, no, but rampant conspiracies are really bad for society. So hmm. you need to try and find a way to square that circle if you want to do both at the same time. Uh, particularists by and large go, look, let's just actually deal with the actual conspiracies and deal with the actual conspiracy theories on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm. So we wrote a response, which we published in the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective. And then some of the authors of the Lamont piece, but not all of the authors, responded to that. So we wrote another response. And they responded to that, and we wrote yes. another response, and that's the point in time where the editor of the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective went, actually, there's a book in this, mm. do you want to edit it? Okay. So I commissioned all of the people who were involved in those responses, along with Charles Pigden and David Cody, who weren't initially involved in the actual writing of those letters, although I think they were co-signers at the time. And we went, look, we need to expand upon these things. So we invited the writers of the Lamont piece to get involved, hmm. and they said no. Gosh. So we had to do that entire section talking about a piece, yes. which we had to describe, but we could not print. You did a good job. One gets a sense of the to and fro about it. But yes, it was noticeable that there was nothing by any of them, but you were clearly responding to them with quotes and the like. Uh, I find it very disturbing as well, this notion of pathologizing people who dare to think about conspiracy theories, because in a sense, everybody does. And so that's pathologizing everyone, which is most unpleasant. I, I don't like this sort of disease metaphor. At all. I, mean, I think this is the beginning of the letter that you talked about. Um, this, of course, is the English version of it here. Let's fight conspiracy theories effectively. The Ministry of Education, this is French Ministry of Education, must test its pedagogical tools against conspiracy culture. The wrong cure might only serve to spread the disease. It doesn't seem to me to be a sensible way of talking about the act of thinking about conspiracy theories, that it's disease-like. Um, that seems very manipulative. Yes, I must admit, I'm not particularly comfortable, and, and I'm increasingly not comfortable, with the medicalization that's going on with a lot of talk about talking about conspiracy theories, talking about disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, fake news, and the like. Mm. I, mm. I think in part because, yes, we're suddenly diagnosing people with pathologies, and unless you're an actual medical professional, that seems very inappropriate. Mm. But also, once you start engaging in medicalization talk, it's almost as if the next sentence is meant to give you the magic pill that will make the problem disappear. 
as if you're going to a GP. And they go, oh, you just need this antiviral or this antibiotic and you'll be fine by next week. And if we are concerned about things like the prevalence of unwarranted conspiracy theories in our polities or the worry that people engaging in insincere allegations of fake news, there's no simple fix to that. It's going to be a complicated discussion about the way our societies work and the way in which we erect structures to ensure that people have the right ability and resources to be able to respond to such insincere claims. There's no magic bullet. That's not the right metaphor I want to I want to go, go for there at all. Unless, of course, we're talking about fixing horses. No, there's no magic pill that makes these problems just disappear. No. And they are very frequently talking about a conspiratorial mindset which I don't find at all helpful. That seems to be a quite circular concept. You know, conspiracy theories are bad because they're produced by this mindset. And we know this mindset is bad because it produces conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, what what does this actually tell you? It doesn't really tell you anything. I, we did talk about mindsets before, but they seem to want to push this idea of the mindset. Yes, and they end up doing it in kind of really, really odd ways. Because if you were to take their views seriously, and I should put the caveat here, it's fairly clear that when they write their their responses, they're writing them in French, and then they're being translated into English. So there may be some translation well, issues going on here, which might explain some of the oddities. It's very generous of you. Hmm. Well, so, hmm. sometimes I like to believe the best of my enemies, because believing the worst makes right. me more depressed. Okay. The way they talk about these conspiracy theories end up going, well, either you're historically illiterate about the cases of actual conspiracies, or you actually think we can just be completely dismissive of anything which has been labelled as a conspiracy theory, even if it turns out to be true. And that doesn't seem like a very good solution to your apparent problem, because surely if you're concerned about conspiracy theories, it's because you think conspiracies are very rare but your solution is going to license people getting away with conspiracies mm. because they can just label any suspicion of wrongdoing Absolutely. as being a conspiracy theory. Yes, indeed. And there are a number of, I can't just pull them up, but there is a number of quotes in the book to that effect. Quite some stark quotes. I think actually Charles Pigton's got some of the most stark ones. You know, you're sort of licensing murder almost by doing this, or you're, there's a great risk of this kind of thing. I'm presuming that's not what they're intending, but... Uh, It could be used that way. Yes. I mean, it does seem like a fairly weird position to hold. And it's actually interesting looking at the responses. So there are three of them. And every time they write a response, they kind of lose one or two co-signature to the response prior, (laughs) which makes you think that as they're being pushed upon particular issues, they're kind of doubling down, and then certain people end up going, I don't really want to be involved in this. Right. And I'm fairly sure she won't mind me mentioning this, although we've never actually talked about this explicitly, but Karen Douglas, who works at Kent, hmm. who's a social psychologist, she's a signatory to the first letter. 
and she doesn't appear in any of the other responses. And I Ooh. know Karen, we've met several times at different conferences. She's trying to get a research project funded and would like me to be on the board that basically looks at the data as it comes in. So she is someone Ooh. who we have some disagreements about things, Ooh. but she's very open to criticism from people like me. Mm. So she's still very much sure that the work she's doing is good, but she's also willing to recognize that sometimes I might have a good point or two about actually questioning how these things are presented. And indeed, Karen's work has gone from being very, very generalist mm. to in recent work going, I mean, there are negative consequences to belief in conspiracy theories, but we have to also appreciate there probably are some social positives as well if it means that people are being vigilant about the existence of purported conspiracies well i'm very glad to hear that because i do want to turn to one example that came up in the text that she was a co-author of a particular study that bothered me and i'm pleased to see that your co-authors were also bothered by it um, just before i go there i found one charles pigton quote that i thought was rather juicy there are lots of juicy quotes in this book so people will enjoy that um, the idea that there is something suspect about conspiracy theories is one of the most dangerous and idiotic superstitions to disgrace our political culture. And I thought it was very interesting that he used the word superstitions there, because, of course, that's something that way back Popper himself had said, um, that conspiracy theories are kind of superstition. And there, Pigden is actually throwing that back, in a sense, and saying, well, actually, to be extreme about it against conspiracy theorizing in toto is a very dangerous superstition in its own right. Yeah, as I say, there are lots of fantastic quotes like that. Uh, Charles always <laughs> a wonderful way with words. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it helps sit along when you're reading. Okay, yes, so I was pleased to see criticism by more than one author in the book of the famous article by Karen Douglas, Michael Wood, Robbie Sutton, called Dead and Alive Beliefs in Contradictory Conspiracy Theories, which I've noted here as being a 2012 article in Social Psychological and Personality Science Journal. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, of course. Now, I read that years ago, and they seem to imply in that article that conspiracy theorists tend to believe in contradictory theories because of what they call a monological belief, um, such as distrusting government and its narratives. Um, but the way they went about establishing that struck me as disingenuous, actually, because I am somebody who remains suspicious of the official Osama bin Laden assassination narrative. And they use that suspicion as part of their research project. And they seem to conclude that if people consider the official story about Osama bin Laden's assassination to be false, um, then those people are just as likely to believe that he died years ago as they are to believe that he's alive now. And because those are obviously, you know, they're incompatible beliefs, that somehow conspiracy theorists who have this monological belief with distrust in government explanations believe contradictory things. And I didn't think they established that at all. And your co-authors here, particularly Curtis Hagen and Lee Basham, were quite vocal about that. And one of them said something like, yeah, but they didn't say, do you believe he died years ago and he's alive now? baking pizzas in Chicago. They didn't ask that question, so they didn't really establish it at all. So I thought that was quite shoddy. How do, how do you explain what was going on with that piece of so-called academic research? 
So I take this to be a case of social psychologists not being particularly good philosophers. So any philosopher worth their salt who's taken logic or taught a critical thinking or reason and argument course will go, look, sometimes you will end up entertaining a whole bunch of seemingly contradictory ideas because you know something is wrong and there's a whole bunch of explanations that might resolve that problem or provide the best yes. explanation. And so you end up going through a kind of weighing process, going, look, so let's take the Osama bin Laden assassination. Hmm. If you think the official theory is in some way incorrect, then you might go, well, look, I've heard a story he actually died 10 years prior, or I've heard a story he's still alive and living in a cave outside of Kabul. All I'm saying is that I don't believe the official theory here. And here are two other explanations, which I think might be true, but I'm not committed to either one being true. I'm simply mm. saying I'm entertaining the idea in the same respect that a detective inspector, upon investigating a crime scene, will go, well, the victim's dead. It was probably either the partner or the child. And no one thinks that a police officer <laughs> who is contemplating different potential yes. murderers is somehow engaging in illogical thinking. Yeah. In that case, we go, well, of course, they're weighing up alternatives. And when they get more evidence, then they'll decide which of those two alternatives they think is the most likely. Yes. But there will be situations where you either go, I don't know, or you go, well, actually, they're both equally likely, given the available evidence I have, more research required. Mm. Just for the record, I don't think they're equally likely, but that's only because I have read so much that suggests he died years ago. But, you know, that's that's immaterial. Yeah, it's a throwaway example here. Yeah, yes. I, I have to say, I do. you are being very generous to them. Um, there are three authors, and we're talking about a pretty basic level of logic here. I have no formal training in philosophy myself, and I've read quite a lot and all that sort of thing. But, you know, these are three academics in university settings. I... I, th I think you're being too generous to them. Well, right, Something's so going the, on there, the, or what's going the on there. Note here. So as you mentioned, they are talking about a monological belief system. Mm. Uh, so this is terminology which I believe originated with Ted Goetzel back sometime in the 90s. So in the social sciences, Ted Goetzel's work is kind of the urtext for the modern work we get on conspiracy theory. And so Ted kind of talks about monological belief systems, of people believing A to B, B to C, D to E. So I suddenly forgot how the alphabet worked there. It's a terrible <laughs> thing. Uh, well, you're an academic, you see. Well, precisely. Sorry. I mean, if we're yeah, going to accuse uh, social psychologists <laughs> of not understanding critical thinking, I don't even know my alphabet. I mean, I mean, really, it's the real idiot in this conversation. Now, if you take it that people have a monological belief system, which I don't think mm. people do, and I don't, I particularly don't think conspiracy theorists do. So this is like the mindset idea again, isn't it? Yeah. So if you think right. people's belief systems are monological, then if they believe two things which are counter to one another in a monological system, they must be contradictory. But it's a, it's a mistake to think that that's how conspiracy theorists or anyone is thinking. Most people are not engaging in 
monological belief systems, mm. most people are weighing up alternatives all the time. Mm. So it's not a case of, I think, they're being deliberately disingenuous. I think this is a case of them not questioning the assumptions that's driving the literature in their domain. Now, you can have an entire conversation about whether that's <laughs> suspicious or why they're not questioning mm. those assumptions. But I think that's mm. at the root of this particular story. They're buying into a story about how conspiracy theorists think that they really shouldn't. And I suppose if I'm going to be generous to these people as well for a moment, um, I suppose what's bothered me even more about this kind of thing, and this particular essay, is the way in which it was then parroted in the media as having proven this contradictory um, idea, which I think it hasn't proven at all. Just here, for example, this is Science Daily writing in 2012. I'll just quote from them. Distrust and paranoia about government has a long history, and the feeling that there is a conspiracy of elites can lead to suspicion for authorities. I think they mean of authorities and the claims they make. For some, the attraction of conspiracy theories is so strong that it leads them to endorse entirely contradictory beliefs, according to a new study. That leads me then to the next section I want to ask you about, which is the political dimension to the criticism of conspiracy theory, the demonization of conspiracy theorizing. And of course, I'm there considering the media to be an organ of, in many cases, corporations and the state. Um, so maybe picking up on things like that study we've just been talking about and things like it and adding it to the arsenal of a weaponization of the idea of conspiracy theory as a negative thing. Um, because you have an article here by Gina Husting, who is a professor of sociology at, is it Boise University? I don't know how to pronounce yeah, that. Yeah, Boise State. Boise State University. Really interesting because she presents a conspiracy theory, perhaps the only one presented in your collection, of this notion of worrying about conspiracy theories and worrying about conspiracy theorists as a kind of social worry. They should worry people in a society. They're a danger. Um, that whole business of worrying about them as a neoliberal strategy to discourage dissent now, the very fact that she puts it as neoliberal, in my mind, means we're looking at governments trying to do this, and we're looking at corporations trying to do this, to some extent in tandem, perhaps even there involving deep state ideas. That is not explicit in the text, and that's another phrase that's maligned, but I think it's a very useful phrase, actually. Have I understood her correctly there when she says that a neoliberal strategy, that she is actually putting forward a conspiracy theory here, maybe a reasonable one, and that she's pointing the finger at both governments and corporations in cultivating this negative attitude? Yes. I mean, one way to look at it is that Jenna is kind of pointing the finger at the societies in which we live in which those societies are going to be made up of corporations, those societies are going to be made up of government, going to be made up of interested citizen groups, going to be made up of the class structure of the society in which you live. Mm -hmm. And yes, she is pointing the finger at there is there's a kind of establishmentarian thinking that works in neoliberal democracies like the ones that we are fortunate, or depending on how you look at it, unfortunate to live in which means that there are certain topics of conversation which are considered to be inappropriate, and there are words that mark those things out in public discourse. I mean, there's a really nice example of this in Aotearoa, New Zealand's history. So 
the 2014 general election that we had, which was the current governing party was the National Party, which is our version of the Conservatives. And at the time, there was a story called Dirty Politics, actually based on a book by New Zealand journalist Nikki Hager, which alleged that the Prime Minister's office was basically farming out bad information about the opposition, information that would make the opposition look incompetent and unelectable, to attack bloggers. So the Prime Minister's office wasn't releasing this information to the media. They were getting people in the office to funnel the information to particular blogs in the country that they knew journalists would read, and then the journalists would read the articles on the blog and then report things in the news, which made it look as if the Prime Minister's office was not involved in the deception at all. And John Key, our then Prime Minister, stepped in front of the media when this book came out, and his way of dismissing the claims in Nikki Hager's book was say, oh, but Nikki Hager is a known conspiracy theorist. Now, what's interesting about this response was that, by and large, the public went, I mean, he is a known conspiracy theorist, but is he actually wrong? Yes. It's very interesting that people did respond that way. So that response by the public speaks of the weaponized use of this term being undermined now in the public mind, and people are beginning to understand that it is being used in that way. And I mean, this actually gets to another issue, because I hmm. I sometimes think that maybe the term has never quite had as much pejorative force as academics and politicians think it is. So what's hmm. actually hmm. interesting about this Dead or Alive paper we talked about was that one of the authors, Mike Wood, who's a Canadian social psychologist, did a study in Canada where he basically polled a whole bunch of Canadians about American politics they wouldn't know much about. And he wrote one version of the story as an explicit conspiracy theory and one version of the story as suggesting a conspiracy but never using the term conspiracy theory. I think the paper is called some dare call it conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And he found even labeling the theory as being a conspiracy theory didn't actually have as much negative effect on a person's reception to the story at all. Mm. So it's actually possible that we're kind of tilting against a windmill here about the strength of the pejorative of conspiracy theory. It may not be the case. The public treats it the same way that people who study conspiracy theories think the public treat it. Yes, I think there's an asymmetry between people's actual belief in conspiracy theories and their willingness to discuss those with fellow citizens. I've picked up on that very strongly, and to some extent in my own life. People will often say, and this comes up in fact in the Jenna Husting article, um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but... Yes. And of course what yeah. they're about to talk about most of the time is in fact something that would be reasonably classified as a conspiracy theory, but there's a field yeah. necessity to say. So even just within that phrase, you have the evidence there that somebody's entertaining a conspiracy theory, but not quite willing to own it 
publicly because it's been weaponized, um, but it doesn't seem to be having quite the force that perhaps those who weaponize it would hope it does. I keep saying weaponized because this article does seem to push in that direction. She talks about the politics of contempt and people being, we well, don't use the term engineered, but that's what I, I get the sense of being engineered to police themselves so that they self-censor, they think the right things, they talk about the right things. Almost a, an Orwellian double think came to my mind when I was reading this particular article. Am I taking her too strongly here? Or do you think she actually really is talking about a definite policy? And I'm not saying who's doing it, but, you know, individuals, but a definite policy by some in power to encourage this quite deliberately so that people will police themselves on certain issues. I mean, she is writing this paper through the lens of the work of Hannah Arant. And of course, Arant's work is all about fascism and how fascism is legitimated by moves within the state, which of course is informed by her experiences of fascism in the early 20th century. So no, I don't I don't think it's pushing it too far to say, yes, there is talk about societal structures here. I mean, it might be arguable as to whether it's a discussion about government or a discussion about society. Uh, a lot of Jenna's work kind of also fits into some of the media studies, media theory stuff that was produced in culture studies in the early 90s. So there's the American media studies expert Jack Z. Bradditch, who in one of his books talks about one of the really interesting things about the policing norms we get in liberal democracies, is that liberalism really is very much a theory about remaining in the sensible centre. Liberals are kind of their centrists. They're not going to go too far on social issues, and they're not going to go too far on financial issues. But the problem with this particular stance is that it kind of takes anything which is to the left of centre or to the right of centre as being ever so slightly extreme. And so you police the centre by going, well, people who don't agree with me are probably actually expressing quite extreme views on economics or social issues, even if it turns out they're actually only minor modifications to the status quo. And that kind of policing norm just requires people to buy into it. Yes. It doesn't require someone at the top saying, you must do it. Interesting. So that connects with the idea of the very famous Overton window that you're only supposed to think and say certain things within that window. And if it lies outside that, you're, this is beyond the pale. You can see that's happening all the time. So, mm, yeah. okay. So you're saying there is a view that this could be something that is just happening by various sociological forces with nobody doing this with great intent, but there may be intent. <laughs> so where do we go with this? Yeah, it's, and I mean, and it also might be something that was set up, but has become ultimately self-sustaining. Mm. Yes. which, of course, is the other issue you have. Yes, yes, uh, yes. One of the best ways to disguise a conspiracy is to set up the conspiracy a long time ago and make sure that all the institutions of the state will perpetuate it without ever requiring that someone go around pressing a button to maintain the status quo. Oh, very interesting, yes. And, of course, you can go down so many rabbit holes with this, but uh, could it be the case that somebody who is aware of that situation, the historical conditioning of the situation, feeds into that just by reinforcing the window frame or perhaps even narrowing the window frame of the Overton window because, you know, they have a particular agenda there, but they're not really pushing a button in the sense of actually starting a big conspiracy. They're just exploiting the window that's there. 
Well, I mean, take, for example, the huge expansion of the military complex in the US. You can say that's actually an active case of insincere actors going, well, you know, what I really want is lower taxes across the board and more privatized health insurance for people. And the easiest way to get the Democrats to subscribe to that thing is to suggest we should spend more money on the military because everybody likes spending money on the military. But I also know if I get them to increase the funding of the military, they have to make cuts somewhere. And so we can kind of predict where those cuts are going to be. And so you use an existing structure to enact an end game. Without actually engaging in a conspiracy, you're simply just using the levers of power which are available to you at a particular time. Yes, I suppose depending upon your definition of conspiracy, that could even be seen as conspiracy if two people were decided to do that and were talking about it. Okay, um, yeah, semantics. All right, fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. I want to come on to the, the last section here, which is, of course, the last bit of the book as well, uh, where you and particularly Charles Pigden are talking about possible helps um, for the future in how to adjudicate conspiracy theories in our mind. Um, Charles Bigton comes up with the notion of defectability. Maybe you want to mention that. If you do, I shall respond to it. But you came up with the, which you've already mentioned, but perhaps say more about it, the, the notion of the community of inquiry, which I find very interesting, but highly problematic. Could you tell us what you mean by the community of inquiry? Why you think it's a good idea, but perhaps, as you admitted to me before the interview, a bit of a utopian idea? Okay, so to start with the Charles thing, so one of Charles's responses to Pat Stokes's reluctant particularism is go, well, look, there are certain conspiracy theories which have which have features which indicate that you would expect that if there really was a conspiracy going on, uh, people would defect from it because the benefit of defecting from the conspiracy and being rewarded is higher than the benefit of staying within the conspiracy theory. Mm. So imagine, for example, that there was a massive cock-up with the dealing of the pandemic in the US last year, and it turned out it was actually deliberate. For some reason, Trump's administration decided that they they were going to deliberately infect a large chunk of the population, and <laughs> okay. Biden gets elected. And you go, well, actually, someone from that team of conspirators who made the pandemic worse, there would actually be benefit for them to make a deal with the Department of Justice, reveal all, because there'll be a kind of reward, which might either be no sentence or a heavily reduced one, and also accolades will probably be on the talk show route for the rest of time, and all these other benefits that come out of it. Whilst conversely, if Trump had been re-elected, then there would be no benefit to revealing this at all. In fact, actually, it would be a huge detriment if you said anything out loud, because there might be physical consequences such as, you know, suddenly falling down a set, a set of stairs unexpectedly. And so Charles is going, look, defectability is a feature which we can use to say some conspiracy theories are good, some conspiracy theories are bad. The kind of conspiracy theories that Pat Stokes is concerned with are the ones which are highly defectable. So we don't need his reluctant particularism. We just need people going around looking at whether a conspiracy is defectable or non-defectable, mm. and then make judgments about the warrant of the associated conspiracy theory. Yeah. Useful. 
but I think it's incredibly hard to decide whether a theory is defectible or not. I mean, talking about somebody being pushed down the stairs or whatever, I mean, in many cases, why would you be a whistleblower if you're going to lose your life? Well, you um, How do you know whether you're going to lose your life? How do you know the theory is serious enough for that outcome? You know what I mean? I find it really difficult. You know, I can see that there's some utility to it, but I think it's pretty limited. I mean, so Charles in personal correspondence has admitted there are so many caveats mm. that have to be put into place. So, for example, the enforcer criterion. Uh, under a Biden presidency, you'd expect a member of the task force that fouled up the pandemic response to reveal all. But it turns out that Roger Stone has spent his fortune on personal assassins who are looking at every single <laughs> member of the conspiracy. And every time they look like they're even thinking about revealing all the assassin does something to stop that from occurring so something can look highly defectible but there can be some kind of internal structure which means actually it's really not mm. and you also you might you might you also might bide your time you might go well biden might only be a one-term president and the next guy who comes along could be a republican and then my life could get really bad really quickly so it's really not in my interest to reveal all. So even Charles admits there are issues with it. Mm, but mm. the thing which I was kind of riffing on when working on that final chapter is that if we are going to say that there should be people going around and doing these kind of investigations, whether it's asking whether a conspiracy is defectable or non-defectable, or looking at Brian L. Keeley's notion of the mature conspiracy theory. Are there conspiracy theories which persist in discourse despite the fact that they accrue no positive evidence? Well, we need people doing that task of sitting down and doing the epistemology of conspiracy theory. And what strikes me as someone who spends almost their entire day thinking about writing about and reading about conspiracy theories, and I'm sure you've got exactly the, the same experience here. I do not, as an individual, have the time or the energy to be able to be a particularist about every single conspiracy theory that I encounter. No. It's just too much time. There are too many of them. <laughs> so you have to pick your battles for sure. And there are some which I think I, I just have a phrase where I say, oh, that's too extravagant, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. I just can't see yeah. it will be worth somebody putting so many resources into something if the outcome will be that weak. So that's quite a, a rule of thumb for me, a useful rule of thumb. But yeah, you, you just have to pick your battles. Yeah. So a better way to do it would be if there was a group of people who could distribute the epistemic load of taking conspiracy theories seriously and investigating them. All right. So you actually mean investigating particular theories. You don't mean yes. doing yeah. what your group is doing and investigating the theory of theorizing. You mean actually investigating particular theories, yes. such as 9-11, yeah. such as JFK. Yeah. And mm. the kind of model I'm thinking of is what the Dewey Commission did for the Moscow trials in the 1930s. So for your listeners who may not be aware of Soviet history back in the early part of mm. the 20th century, Stalin was very, very concerned that there were conspiracies going on about him and around him all the time, and probably actually justifiably, because there were a lot of people who were conspiring yes. against Joseph Stalin. Mm. So he was concerned that his former friend, Leon Trotsky, was actually orchestrating a conspiracy to return to Russia, take control, and depose Stalin. So he asked the proto-KGB, go out and 
investigate this and give me the evidence I need to show that Trotsky is a is is a rum doer of some kind. Yeah. And the proso KGB go off and they, they do their investigation and they come back and go, look, there's there's no evidence yes. that Trotsky yes. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Trotsky thinks that the communist revolution in Russia has failed. He wants to orchestrate a communist revolution internationally and then hope that Russia will fall into lockstep with proper international communism. You don't need to be concerned about Trotsky. Right, so that's the report back to Stalin, who was not satisfied with that. And Stalin's response was, no, I asked you to find evidence of a conspiracy, so go find it. So over the Mm. next nine months, they basically interrogate a whole bunch of people, get them to perjure themselves on the stand, and they prove the existence of a conspiracy that never occurred to satisfy Stalin's need to show that there was a conspiracy against him. Mm. So these are why they're called the mock or show trials. The verdicts were not genuine. They were engineered by the state. Now, over in America, the American philosopher John Dewey, who I must point out did not like Stalin one iota, mm. he reads about the trial verdicts and goes, well, I, I don't think this is true. So he forms what's called the Dewey Commission, a whole bunch of journalists, historians, and political philosophers, and they take the publicly available trial transcripts and they sit down and as a group they go through and they find anomalies. So Trotsky's son dies and then holds meetings in two different cities in Europe uh, on the same day, right. which is a pretty remarkable thing for a person to do when they're alive before high-speed travel, but particularly <laughs> remarkable when the person's dead. And they find a whole bunch of inconsistency. Yes. The only other person I can think of who managed that was Osama bin Laden, but never mind, that's just my little quip. Yeah, go on. And so, yeah, so they find, so they find all these inconsistencies, and so they write mm. up the Dewey Commission report. Uh, they give the report to the governments of the UK and the US to go, look, we've got evidence to show that Russia basically manufactured verdicts in these trials. Yes. What are you going to do? So the UK and the US did what any government in that day would do. They rang the Kremlin and said, uh, ah, do you have yes. any comment on this? Mm. And the Kremlin's response was, oh, no, that is disinformation, which is the first time that term gets used. So, so the Kremlin invents that term ah. to discredit a report into a conspiracy they committed. This happens around about 1939. It's only 20 years later when Stalin dies and Khrushchev becomes chair of the Communist Party mm. that Khrushchev, in order to distance himself from what happened back then, admits that the Dewey Commission was largely right about wow. what went on. Their investigation actually did show that there was a massive conspiracy. The problem was that they told people about it and people didn't believe them because it's one of those pejoratively named conspiracy theories, which kind of shows that the, you know, the term conspiracy theory had a pejorative gloss all the way back yes. to the early part of the 20th century, which admittedly means I've just told you a story about a failure of a community of inquiry, but that's kind <sighs> of what I'm thinking of, getting diverse experts mm. and also the laity involved in investigating particular claims so that we can actually get to the heart of the matter when people start saying, well, we should take this conspiracy theory seriously. Go, yeah, we've got a group of, over there. They're working on it right now. Yes. 
very interesting, very appealing, but, <laughs> and you knew I was going to say this. <laughs> this is the famous book. Yeah, I mean, I could point to, for example, the 9-11 consensus panel, 23 experts. I don't think they're all alive now, but um, and I will indicate the website. People go and see it, consensus911.org. Presumably you are familiar with that. And I'll just read from what they say here. The purpose of the 9-11 consensus panel is to provide the world with a clear statement based on expert independent opinion. Now, I think a lot of people probably say, well, they're not. Well, they're independent, but they've got a, perhaps an axe to grind um, of some of the best evidence opposing the official narrative of 9-11. The goal of the consensus panel is to provide a ready resource, etc., etc. Um, so they are a community of inquiry, but no doubt, you know, as I said before, you could say, well, they're biased. Well, how do you ever pick a panel? How do you ever appoint a community that's not biased in one way or another? I mean, that is a good question. So, I mean, the the short form, which is that in an ideal world, the constitution of your community of inquiry, or as the Irish call them, a citizen's assembly, is going to include both people who are believers in the thing you're investigating, people who are dissenters in the thing you're investigating, and the, the agnostics are going, well, I don't really know what to think about this. And they all sit down and they go through the evidence, and you've got experts, you've got members of the lay public as well, and they produce, say, a majority report and a minority report. So mm -hmm. if you dissent from what most of the people think, you can, like the Supreme Court in the US does, write a report explaining why you think everyone is wrong. But that is a utopian ideal there, because there is this question, how do you get people involved? When I think of this, I actually think of ancient Athens, and we'll leave the sexism and <laughs> racism sure. of the Athenian assembly to one side. But the Athenian assembly was technically every single voting member who just happened to be a white man back in those days had to serve at least one calendar month in the Athenian assembly. So you didn't really have any choice. One month a year, you had to go and spend a month voting on ordinances, laws, and foreign policy. And then for the next, because I think the Athenian year was 10 months in length, for the next nine months of the year, you were free to go about doing your usual business. So it was like a jury selection thing where you couldn't get out of it. But of course, that's very easy to go, oh, we'll just make people turn up to these things. Mm. But there's a whole bunch of other attendant issues there, which is how do you stop demagogues from forming within yes. communities of this type who are simply going to tell people what they should think or go, no, we're going to ignore your point there. Don't write that bit down. What I think we should be focusing on is this thing here. Right. So this being like a jury service, you get people called up to investigate a particular conspiracy theory, and you might have, I don't know, 50 people perhaps randomly chosen in the population. Is that the kind of idea? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it is going to be weighted such that there are going to be some actual experts Ex in amongst yes. those 50 yes. random <laughs> yes. people. So somebody weighs that. So somebody weights that. And yeah. so, yeah, who's going to weight that? And, and of course, this doesn't exclude the societal pressures that are out there. So, if people think that they're going to be looked at as crazy if they endorse the conspiracy theory because of the pressures of the media, that's all still going to be there, isn't it? This, this oh, looks yeah. like a complete transformation of society you're calling for. It is. I mean, and mm. 
as I said to you before the interview started, it is it is a utopic idea, one of the benefits of being an academic philosopher. <laughs> I don't yes. actually have to engage in writing policy documents as to how the how we should go about doing things. I can imagine how the world should work. Yes. And then someone's going to take that idea and find a way to make the world actually map the way I think the world should work. Okay. And no, you're right. I mean, there's going to be a whole bunch of societal stuff, mm. which is going to intrude upon this. If you live in a society where even being seen to think about a conspiracy theory is considered a sign of mental disturbance, then it, even with the best of intentions, you're probably still going to get outcomes that poo-poo conspiracy theories which turn out to be warranted mm, mm. can i suggest perhaps even a stronger criticism i mean it's related to the societal thing but i think there are certain questions say there are 50 people whatever <laughs> 25 people are on roughly on one side of it 25 people are roughly on the other side just because statistically the case let's say a number of these questions some of these conspiracy theories are going to be rather worldviewish in nature so if it calls into question perhaps the the state that they're living in, a lot of people will be uncomfortable with that because they've been brought up to trust the state. So in that case, are you not going to have just people talking past each other? It's not going to be so much about the evidence. It's going to be one worldview against another, a kind of clash. You're never going to get past that. Isn't that a sort of intrinsic weakness of the very idea when you're talking about that kind of conspiracy theory? Yes. And I mean, I think this actually goes back to that point I made about the Dewey Commission report. So Dewey hated Stalin before they even began the investigation right. into the trials of the 1930s. So it was actually quite clear that whatever Dewey was going to write, it was going to be a Stalin is bad report. Now, it turns out he was right about Stalin being bad. So it turns out him going in with, you might say, the worst of intentions doesn't actually affect the outcome. If Stalin does a bad thing, then if you don't like Stalin, it's going to be a lot easier for you to then write those condemning words about what Stalin did. But yes, most of the cases we get of people engaging in an investigation of complex claims which are associated with conspiracy theories tend to be investigations made by people who are trying to prove a point. Mm. So the consensus report on 9-11 was written by people with an existing view about what they think mm. the event was. And in the same respect, you might go, well, look, the Popular Mechanics article <laughs> yes. on debunking inside job 9-11 views, that was also written from the perspective of people who are going, well, I think these people are crazy. Mm. We need to write articles that show they believe weird things. Mm. And it would be nice if we could find a way to have conversations about these things yes. where we weren't walking in with preset views. Now, in an ideal world, we could do that. But yeah, I think the point is well made. Most of us are coming to the table with assumptions about things, and it's really hard to shape those. So does that mean that by having this idea of the inquiry community, you're focusing down on what the ideal is, but it can be so easy to deconstruct that with just this last five minutes, we have been doing that. Does that not mean then that you should just back away from that and say, that well, actually, what we already have is the ideal, in a way, 
or the best that can be made of the real world, in that there are all kinds of groups, communities of different flavors, talking about these things with different views and arguing. And that what we really need to do is to work hard to change the whole of society with regard to this, so that the whole of society becomes more of a, a fair marketplace of ideas, which then means there's a big pushback against these various forces that we have been talking about, which try to paint conspiracy theorizing as something really negative, which which really comes to the centre of what you're driving at with your work, isn't it? Um, I'm kind of endorsing the centre of your work rather than this particular idea. Okay, I'm going to be strong about this. Does not the failure of this particular idea throw into focus, throw into relief the main project that you have, which is to change the public discourse generally in the population? Yes, I agree. I mean, it does. I mean, once you actually start thinking about why a community of inquiry process probably isn't going to work, it then makes you go, well, actually, maybe the first project was the best way to go about it anyway. What we should be doing yep. is trying to strip the pejorative yep. from conspiracy theory, adopt this neutral, broad, and general definition, and focus very much on, okay, how do we investigate these claims? How do we talk about the warrant of these claims? Can we use this to then also argue for increased transparency and openness in our society. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons why people think that conspiracies don't happen in Aotearoa, New Zealand, or at least they don't happen as much as they might happen elsewhere, is that we're not only a fairly open and transparent society, but also a very small one. So it's much harder to get away with a conspiracy here because everybody's met the prime minister at some point. I mean, our current prime minister once stole my shopping trolley from me about <laughs> 10 years ago. That's how close-knit wow. our society is here. Uh, although that being said, I actually do have a, I do have a new way of dealing with this entire issue. I think that we should get our friend Bill Gates to inject those nanochips into our necks, which act as mind control devices. Uh -huh. If we all think the same way, the problem's just going to disappear. Oh, wow. I didn't think we were going to end in that way. I say, I don't know what to make of that. What a conspiracy theorist you are. Well, I mean, or or are you part of the conspiracy? It sounds like you're part of it. Earlier today, Pardon? And I'm, I'm beginning to feel it kick in. <laughs> Oh, dear. Well, I have to say, thank you ever so much, Dr. Dentith, for coming on and talking about this. It's an absolutely fascinating conversation. I feel like I go on asking you questions for hours, but it would not it would not be fair to keep you up. What's the time for you now? It's approaching midnight, isn't it? Uh, 25 past 11. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, it wouldn't be fair to keep you longer. Thank you ever so much for talking about this. I have enjoyed it enormously, and I'm highly recommending this. As I say, I think it's an essential book. Obviously, it doesn't take one everywhere in the wider conversation that you are having with your colleagues, but uh, quite a lot of it's very representative. Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2018. There is a Kindle version, as you mentioned, slightly cheaper, just a little bit cheaper. You have a website, mrxdentith.com. Um, you used to have another one. No, that really hasn't actually been updated in a while because I've realized that ah. no one really does blogs much anymore so okay. people are probably better off going to philpeople.org so p-h-i-l-p-e-o-p-l-e.org okay. and if they search for my name there you'll get all of my publications up to date where when possible i try to make sure preprints are available for the public to read some journals allow you to 
post preprints for free, some don't. I try to make sure that whatever can be made freely available is freely available. Excellent. And that will keep people very much up to date on the work that I'm doing. Wonderful. So that's fillpeople.org and then search for dentist. I'll put that in the show notes. You also yeah. have a podcast I mentioned before, The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, which I presume you are riffing there on Douglas Adams. Um, I what will they, yes, yeah. very much so. <laughs> well, Okay, what do they find there? Do they find it as um, dry as our conversation today, or do they find it rather more like... So, so the, the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy <laughs> currently does three revolving segments. So... Every three weeks, we look at a classic paper in the academic literature. So we've been going through mm-hmm. papers beginning with Charles's paper back in 1995. We're now up to the middle of 2008. And Josh and I talk through the paper, its role and position in the academic literature, what works about it, what doesn't work, what gets riffed upon, what never gets talked about again. Then every other week, we do a segment called What the Conspiracy, where the idea (laughs) is one of us is meant to introduce to the other a conspiracy theory they've never heard of before. And sometimes these are weird and wacky conspiracy theories. Sometimes these are actual conspiracies that have happened in history, which might be the kind of thing which most people haven't uh-huh. heard of. So Josh last week, uh, the week week before last, talked about the infamous Time Cube website, uh, which has a very weird view about how the day is actually a four-sided square and there's a conspiracy in the heart of mathematics. I bet he'd be doing a whole <laughs> bunch of weird conspiracies from the 18th century in Ooh. the UK of just these really minor stories which have been largely lost to history, but very much rest upon very interesting conspiracies. In fact, people should look up the Guthrie conspiracy, which is a conspiracy surrounding James I, and it's very, very weird. Mm, uh, and then every other week, we basically take a look at either a contemporary or historical conspiracy theory that we both know about, and we try to explain that to the audience. So this week, we'll be talking about the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Hmm. back at the end of the 19th century, and the dueling theory as to whether it was a false flag event or whether it was just an unfortunate accident, and the fact that Ah. people keep changing their mind about this. Excellent. So you do actually deal in particular theories, but you also have this academic side and also the the lighter-hearted side. Excellent. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty. Have you covered Space Mouse? We have a think tank here at The Mind Renewed, and we looked at the SpaceX Space Mouse. Have you covered that one? Oh, the, uh, the what I like to think of is Elon Musk sending up his murder victim into space. Is that the SpaceX spaceman you're thinking of? Oh, no, the space mouse. Oh, space mouse. Oh, no, sorry. On one of the engines, it was claimed that there was a mouse running around the side of this engine. And uh, obviously... Therefore, it must have been filmed in a studio. We covered that Ooh, one. So. I, I will have, have, yes. have, have a listen to that. Please do feel free. I think we came up with a theory about that, which we all agreed made some sense, some kind of sense anyway. Um, well, I'll probably invite you to join us for a think tank one day if you, if you have a free moment. Yep. That, sound, <laughs> um, that sounds fine. 
It's great fun. Great fun. Okay, well, thank you ever so much again, Dr. Antith, for coming on. It's been a fantastic conversation. And thank you ever so much for spending all this time with us. It's been a very long conversation. Long overdue, as I explained before. Wonderful. Thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Show notes for this interview can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakov, attribution non-commercial share alike for International. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Dr. M.R. X. Dentith, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.